Hello everyone and welcome to episode 96 of the History Hotline. My name is Diana and I'm your host today um, and in this episode uh, I will be sharing an interview I did um, with the wonderful Tion Paris um, who we'll learn about more in the episode um, but essentially is a member of the History Matters editorial team, um, a coordinator in the Young Historians Project and a PhD candidate um, looking at radical black women um, in the US um, and black power movements. Um, in this episode we will be talking about um, so many women that not only worked in the US actually but crossed over into Britain um, at a variety of points in their life um, and in their careers. Um, some of those names you might be familiar with and some of them you may not be. Uh, Claudia Jones being one of them, uh, Aslanda Robeson, Angela Davis, Vicky Garvin, Louise Thomas-Patterson, um, just to name a few of the people we'll be speaking about today. And this episode, it kind of like hits two series um, at the kind of intersection uh, as we get to this middle point of Black History Month in the US, still thinking about uh, some of these uh, US histories that kind of cross and connect with the UK, um, but also with the fact that we have um, a little ongoing series that is less frequent. Um, episodes kind of come out every month with the History Matters editorial team, uh, where we have members of that team sharing their work. And I think the majority of the team look at um, Black British history, uh, but Tion's work crosses over into the US, and I thought it would be perfect to have her on this month, as we are thinking about some of elements of US history, um, more so because it is February. So without further ado, let us get into this episode. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I genuinely learned so much from the conversation as I do with every conversation I have with Tion. Um, but yeah, today's episode, I think you're in for a treat, if I do say so myself. We have Tion Paris with us today. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'm really excited to to get into kind of your research, um, your work with History Matters Journal, with Young Historians Project as well. Um, and I think it kind of comes at a perfect time because your work does cross over um, into looking at um, black power um, and uh, radicalism, especially within women um, in the US as well. And obviously it is Black History Month um, in America at the moment. So I thought it would be perfect to have you on this month um, as part of this kind of crossover, looking at the two places. Um, so I thought that I would just introduce Tian and tell you a little bit about her work, uh, just so you know who we have on the show today. So Tian Paris is part of the editorial board of the History Matters Journal and has been part of the journal team since 2021. She's also a PhD candidate in history at the University of Hertfordshire and a coordinator at the Young Historians Project. She's a specialist in African-American history and specifically in the black power movement of the 1960s and 70s. Her current PhD research uh, concerns the ideological connections between black radical women of the early 20th century and the black power movement of the latter half of the 20th century in the United States and internationally. The study is interested primarily in the transfer of tactics and ideology, as well as the interpersonal and intergenerational exchange between activists. So it's very, very good to have you, Tion. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great introduction. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. Um, I just wanted, I was thinking uh, before we were recording uh, when we first met, and it was actually thinking about radical black women for the Lawrence Wishart publishing um, talk, I think yeah. it was in 2021. Yep, 
<laughs> and literally since then I have been welcomed into the Young Historians Project and other wonderful writing groups and things like that so Tian is a very 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 wonderful person uh, <laughs> bringing people together for historical purposes um, thank you really grateful. so I thought we'd start just by getting to know you a little bit better with some quick fire questions mm-hmm. as we always do um why did you decide to study history at what point was that a thing for you mm. so I I can tell you it's a bit of a long story but I'm going to try and shorten it so I listeners may notice I have a Scottish accent so I grew up in Scotland um my dad is African-American and my mum is white Scottish but I didn't have that African-American influence directly from my dad in my life so my mum as I was growing up was very very on it and uh, made a real effort to sort of make sure that we my sister and I understood sort of African-American culture we were brought up with the music um, with movies um and also with history so that was obviously part of our heritage that as we were growing up and learning about Scottish heritage my mum made a real effort to make sure that we knew our African-American heritage as well so that was part of my life when I was growing up and then my flashpoint and the thing I always point to is that when I was 13 my mum bought me the autobiography of Malcolm X and that was where everything sort of changed for me because for a long time I'd been aware of like Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement Um, But I hadn't known much about Malcolm X. And then that kind of opened Pandora's box into radicalism because I sort of understood that there was another path that was taken. Um, And then also being a teenager, that led me down the rabbit hole of the Black Panther Party, who I'm sure a lot of black teens can agree it was, was, you know, very aesthetically cool. Uh, I liked the ideas that they had. Yeah. And (laughs) and, and they just like, I mean, you couldn't get away from it as a teenager. It's just like the coolest group of people. Um, to look at but also to hear them speak and and their boldness was something that really stuck with me Um, so when I was in high school I decided I wanted to try and do as much of Malcolm X and radicalism as I could even though it wasn't really on the curriculum Um, and I did the same thing through my undergrad and and my master's so I always sort of chose the radical path uh, to study and that's how I ended up here Um, yeah Oh wow, fantastic. I love that story. No, definitely. And I think it's it's interesting. I think a lot of people do start with the US when it comes to kind of being introduced to black history more broadly, even in Britain, um, and even without having like African American like family members or influences in your life. Um so it's kind of interesting you've come kind of from a similar place as a lot of us. Um yeah. probably a lot of people listening as well. But interesting that it was Malcolm X that you were kind of introduced to and that changed things for you because a lot of people kind of get introduced to like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and um, maybe less radical individuals uh, when it comes to, to the US. And one of the interesting things with Malcolm X was as well, like his name Malcolm Little came from a Scottish kind of background. So as yeah. a Scottish black sort of teen, I was like, whoa, there's, we're connected in ways that I didn't even think of. Oh, wow. Um, so that, was, that was also part of the draw. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Because, yeah, you know, being Scottish, there wouldn't be necessarily a clear link you could see otherwise. Yeah. Um, wow, very, very interesting, that. <laughs> okay, so what then is your favourite historical time period? This can be you know what you study or just generally what you like yeah um so I think if you'd asked me a few years ago I'd obviously say it's the black power movement it's the 1960s and 70s but interestingly when I kind of thought about this question it was I I was kind of struck by the fact that I'm more interested now in the 1950s because I think so much happens then that I guess you you don't 
really learn of in school. Like, for example, there's, there's sort of political activism that happens before the civil rights movement that is really gearing up in that decade. Um, and there's loads of radical groups as well in the US, like the Civil Rights Congress. Um, and, and there's kind of the fracturing of the Communist Party, which I have to mention as a, as a communist historian. Um, and then just the trajectory as well of loads of activists in that decade. You can see where there's kind of splits and where where the sort of 1960s ends up. You can see the beginnings of that happening in the yeah. 1950s. Um, and also just finally, there's there's things like the Bandung Conference as well in 1955, where you see um, sort of Asian-African solidarity being built um, before it kind of happens in the 1970s with the third world alliances that happen then. So there's just lots and lots that could be said about the 1950s that I've learned more and more um, in the last couple of years that has really changed my my favourite period. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's important because all of these kind of really big moments, as you said, the 60s that we kind of think about, there's, there's always a build-up, you know, there's always like decades sometimes of history that comes before that that leads to these moments. It's interesting, I'm reading now about the 1930s um, and early 40s as a kind of quote-unquote Windrush historian um, and seeing the kind of things that happen beforehand um, and the kind of movements that are taking place um, and the kind of bits of policy that are kind of creeping in to lead up to the moment of like 1948 or the 1950s or 60s is it is really important actually exactly very interesting you said that um who would you say and I know your research does look at individuals um quite a lot but if you had to pick one who would be your favorite historical figure see this is a hard question because I feel (laughs) like I am offending some of the women in my study if I don't choose them (laughs) um I think so Islanda Robeson is someone that I'm currently um, very infatuated with, I think. Um, she's sort of lesser known out of a lot of the women. Um, Claudia Jones is another one in my project. But um, Islanda Robeson is a person that I'm just so, so interested in. Um, because as a, as a black woman in the 20th century, she was a scientist who then became an anthropologist. Wow. And then she travels to Africa by herself with her eight-year-old son. Um, and this is in the 1930s. And she travels across various countries in Africa and writes about them from the lens of trying to kind of break down European uh, colonialist views of Africa and things that she'd been taught as an African-American about Africa. Uh, she refers to it as like her homeland as well. And this this is in the 1930s. It's very pan-Africanist of her, um, kind of before that becomes a huge movement. Um, and then also as an observer of international politics as well, I'm interested in the way that she kind of analyzes things like the the founding of the United Nations. Um, she has a lot to say about that as, a, as an African-American, and she has a lot to critique about that as well, and she critiques other African-American women. Um, so I kind of, I, I just, I, I'm just so interested in her. She's a really interesting character, and um, one of the funny things about her is that she was never really afraid of anything. She stood up to um, various senators and lawmakers who tried to accuse her of being a communist. Wow. Um, she writes these very witty articles <laughs> about <laughs> being attacked as a as a supposed communist. Um, and then she said the only thing she was ever afraid of was cats. So I really love that. <laughs> like, she said that to sort of senators in the house. Yeah. And that is just so bold. And I aspire to be that, I don't know, that strong one day. But yeah. I see Except that. for cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't mind cats too much. <laughs> Maybe you're in better stead. Oh, well. Do you, um, just thinking about, I know um, Aslanda Robson comes up in your, your PhD work as well. Did you start then thinking about um, some of these women um, and some of their lives? 
or did you start looking at as you said like radicalism and and then these women kind of fit into that like what came first (laughs) so it it kind of it worked backwards actually so my master's was on um the prison abolitionist movement in the 1960s and 70s in the US so Angela Davis was a huge kind of central figure in that thesis Um, and what I was interested in was the fact that Angela Davis obviously is an icon now and I thought it was interesting that that was the only woman I knew of Um, and one of the parts of her autobiography she mentions that the prison or the jail that she was first put in she requested books and they might have been the books of Claudia Jones and I was like, hold on, what? <laughs> and then I, you know, I kind of read backwards from there and realized that, you know, there's there's a lot more to to be known about black communist women and black radical women um, in particular. Uh, and, and the way that there is a kind of lineage and a, a direct a direct line you can draw through the 20th century of these women who came before Angela Davis and did, did a lot of work that now we we are just now kind of unearthing. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. And yeah, they are all, of course, connected um, and probably I'm sure there are more connections to draw out between um, the work of these women and how they would have influenced each other as well mm-hmm. um, so that's we've gone with um, Slander Robeson as your favourite is there a historical figure you wish more people knew about can I pick one from my of course <laughs> you can yeah, definitely okay. <laughs> so uh, I think Vicky Garvin, who okay. is one of the women in my project, she was um, a union activist and also part of the Communist Party. Um, but in terms of the network of women that I look at, she's one who's been, I think, slightly less studied. There's a yeah. lot of small piece kind of articles about her and a lot of like journal articles that are really interesting. But I really, I, I pray for a, a full biography of her one day. Mm. Um, I'm not convinced I will be the person to write it, but I can't wait to see the kind of entirety or the the totality of her life yeah um, because it's so interesting she joins um the national negro labor council in the 1950s yeah. and she's part of a lot of sort of delegations and is involved with the women in my project and then she also she hosts malcolm x uh in accra in ghana in 1964 and has a good relationship with him uh, and then she goes off and lives in china and is the, wow. the sort of black left representative of african-americans there um, so she lives this really interesting life where she stays in a bunch of different places across the world. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I can't wait for there to be more out there about her. Definitely. I mean, she's not a, a woman that I had heard of until you said it today. So um, <laughs> hopefully speaking about her on this, or maybe there's someone out there listening that's going to write that book, or maybe you're going to do it, Tion. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> no um, No, none at all. I think we've got enough of that. <laughs> Doing yeah. PhDs. <laughs> Um, right, so you are um, a member of the History Matters editorial team, um, and I just wondered how you kind of came into contact with History Matters. Why is it you decided to join, um, and how it kind of you know influences your work or impacts the work that you do? That's a great question. So I joined History Matters. Uh, I was part of the Young Historians Project first. Yeah. Um, and I was approached to join History Matters because I was aware of it, but I, you know, I hadn't been involved kind of behind the scenes yet. Um, and obviously, as a historian, someone who is doing a PhD in Britain, um, kind of linkages to Black Britain as well. I think um, the people at History Matters were like, "Yeah, this makes sense. Sort of bring me in." Yeah. Um, and I think for me, as a historian who looks a lot at magazines and newspapers and independent publishing amongst Black left kind of groups. 
I thought it would be really interesting to see what goes on behind the scenes, um, to see the kind of machinations behind producing a publication. Um, and then also there's the community aspect, kind of being able to ally with like-minded historians who are also passionate about sharing these, these underserved histories. Um, so that was that was how I joined. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, definitely. Um, and it, how has the kind of insight been then being kind of behind the scenes of a journal like History Matters? Um, have you noticed anything or can you like not necessarily draw similarities to the to the like journals and um, publications that you read? But are there any things that have been interesting to note? I think the main thing is the the sheer amount of work and meetings that go into putting yeah. these things together. Um, I guess I've never thought of the various steps that it takes, the various decisions that have to be discussed. Um, and then, of course, seeing the range of submissions that come in is, is for me really interesting because I think that, for me anyway, as a historian who has largely focused on the US and now sort of looking more internationally, um, I... I will admit I did not know enough about Black British history, and that is also like kind of an indictment on the the curriculums that we are taught. Um, but also, interestingly, as someone who grew up in Scotland, which is so- somewhat culturally different in a lot of ways, yeah. um, I, I I never gravitated towards Black British history because it just felt very London centric and a very different culture than the one that I'd grown up with. So, um, I think being part of the History Martyrs Journal has been. Um, a real learning exercise for me as well. Like I learn as much from the submissions and from the various sort of contacts that we make within the journal, as well as sort of helping to put it together. Um, so it's it's a really rewarding experience. I definitely find that interesting, um, especially to the point of like black, like knowing about Black British history because um, the History Matters journal is um, kind of focused on the. Um, more African Caribbean people in Britain and the kind of things I've done and moments and events and whatever else. Um, but as you said, I think initially as well, and maybe now I think we're getting a bit better with regional histories and uh, when we think about Black British history, but not you wouldn't see Scotland. And it's interesting that we say Black British history as opposed to like Black English history mm-hmm. um, to include um, Scotland, Wales, um, Northern Ireland. But how much of that history do we actually ever talk about um like I couldn't I don't think I could tell you anything about Scotland except for is there a footballer played for Celtics yeah I can't remember the name now but yes uh, Arthur Wharton no Tull Walter Tull one of them I can't remember sorry I'm gonna no I'm not gonna edit it in because that'll be that'll make me look good and I I didn't know (laughs) I definitely I definitely know who you're talking about yeah before (laughs) yeah literally but that as it that's it that's all I can point on for Scotland and like yeah black Scottish history Mm -hmm. um do you think I know you're not like based in Scotland uh, at the moment but Mm -hmm. is there an effort in Scotland to to bring in black histories or is it quite different with the way things are going there so I don't know anyone that's sort of school age in Scotland, so I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't tell you. But yeah. when I was at school, which was, uh, I guess, almost 10, no, not 10 years ago. Oh my God, I'm not that old. <laughs> like eight, eight-ish years ago, um, our curriculum was entirely African-American if there was any blackness in it. Okay. So there was nothing about Black Britain. So things that happened, you know, I guess we when we talk about Black Britain um, in the sense of sort of regular curriculums, it's always kind of England that they look at. There was nothing like that in my curriculum. And even the, what we did get of blackness was the civil rights movement. And that was it. So, I, again, still very, very limited. Um, and I think part of it is that in Scotland, there just isn't 
um, a huge amount of research that's been done into Black Scotland. I mean, we have obviously um, sort of first and second generation immigrant communities who have come and are Black. But in terms of sort of, I guess, native Black, there's Mm -hmm. not a huge amount that's been done. Yeah, I think because I think because the focus on Black British history for so long has been quite 20th century um, and even later. Yeah. It does exclude probably any earlier histories and regional histories are even further behind that. Mm-hmm. But then I'm thinking, just mentioning Scotland, I think the only links of Scotland that I would maybe consider being part of like Black British history would be links to slavery yep. and Scotland's links in, yeah. in different parts of the Caribbean. Yep. Um, and so that is yeah, in terms of teaching a curriculum, that is a really limited scope. And again, yeah. I think black people are fed up of seeing themselves just as enslaved. So yep. there is an element of that as well that probably would come about in Scotland. But it'd be interesting to see if if things change in Scotland mm-hmm. at all or have changed for like people in school and what they're learning after, especially 2020 and, yep. and all the kind of calls that have come out of that. Sure. And I think it's, it's particularly difficult as well because of the, I guess, um, Scotland would have to atone for a lot of its mm. um, involvement in slavery as well, which is something that I think I know. I, I, I guess generally in Scotland, there's a, a vibe that it's a lot more progressive, yeah, or a lot more accepting. Racism is not as well. Um, oh, it's not really allowed. Of course, it's not allowed anywhere, but it's less acceptable mm. there. Um, but to kind of dig up these these colonial links or these uh, linkages to slavery as well opens up another kind of worms. So yeah. it is a really sort of difficult thing um, to unpick. And I don't know what research is being done there already. Um, maybe yeah. in 10 years' time, I'll, I'll go oh, back. No. And... Yeah. Or oh, there's probably <laughs> someone listening yeah. that's screaming, like, why haven't you, why don't you know about this person? <laughs> They're doing the work. There's yeah. probably a few people. I'm sure. I'm They're sure. shouting names. If you do have any names, just Please send them to them. us on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, just thinking about then your work with the US, and as you mentioned, um, the History Matters Journal being um, kind of looking at Black British history. How does your work cross over or does it cross over um, into to Black Britain? It definitely does. So I think when I first started my PhD, I had a very kind of insular bubble view of what I was going to be looking at. And I thought, well, I'm going to look at, you know, African-Americans in America and what yeah. they did there. Uh, but as the project has gone along, it's just they've all spidered out and they're, you know, they're visiting Africa and China and they're visiting Britain. Um and I think Amelia said on the previous episode as well, she mentioned the the British Black Power movement, which obviously had a huge kind of influence from um, the American Black Power movement. Um, and I remember one of the real kind of light bulb moments when I first joined the Young Historians Project as well was was a picture of Zainab Abbas, who was part of the British Black Power movement, and she was standing next to Kathleen Cleaver. And, uh, I found some information about how they'd both attended um, events together. And I just thought, oh, OK, so this is all interconnected. There is no way you can sort of divorce Britain and America and their histories because they're really intertwined. And even more than that, the sort of global diasporic experience is all woven into that as well. So it's it's been really um, eye-opening. And again, every contribution I see from people who submit to the History Matters Journal just kind of broadens my horizons of of the kind of histories and the ways that they're connected absolutely definitely and when you kind of mention all that I'm just thinking you've you mentioned um some of the the women that you look at and the 
the kind of breadth of the globe that they've traveled, um, whether it be the Soviet Union or to China or to parts of Africa, the Caribbean, you know, that's that's all the continents. Well, majority mm-hmm. of them <laughs> um, <laughs> around the world. And it's it, as you as you've said, it would be weird for you not to kind of be kind of getting into these global connections and the global elements of, of mm-hmm. black power as well. Um, I think it's important and I've, I think I've said it before on this podcast that like no movement for like black liberation happens in a vacuum they're all part of a bigger struggle or movement or uprising that doesn't just start in the one area that it might end or um, the kind of conference is presented or that speech is given there's always so much more to it and I think your work really speaks to that quite well I was gonna say uh, if I had to point anyone to a specific example of this you don't really have to look any further than the West Indian Gazette run by Claudia Jones there are so many examples of her turning a lens to global issues and talking about things and they're being kind of translated and transmitted to black people in Britain and the idea is to sort of bring them in and show there's a global community that we are all a part of yeah definitely and even I think maybe we don't think about it so much with the with the later migrations um to Britain in the kind of Windrush era. But when you look at some of the like West Indian intellectuals as they're known coming over in the like twenties and thirties, they they remain I think with one leg in the Caribbean and one leg in Britain and maybe even a, another limb in America and one yeah. in Africa. Like mm-hmm. there's there's never a I don't think you can separate the two places or the three or four spaces. Um, they're always connected because the we are as an African diaspora always going to be connected mm-hmm. to one another despite the divisions that people might want to try and create in the more present day um, but especially looking back to the kind of era and the time period that you look at um, it's very clear that these links are are there and very much make sense yep I couldn't say it better myself thank you <laughs> <That was great. laughs> I tried <laughs> Okay. Um, I wanted to think more about your work, but specifically um, about an article that you wrote um, on Claudia Jones um, and black radicalism in Britain for the History Matters Journal. Um, And I think it was interesting for me because whenever I've looked at Claudia Jones, it's very much been from a perspective of Britain um, and looking at her contributing to British history. Um, And so that means looking at West Indian Gazette, as you said, or Carnival or like um, race relations in West London and Notting Hill. Um, But I think you started off that article really kind of pushing the point that there is so much more to Claudia Jones than any one aspect of her life as um, a Trinidadian woman, as a woman in America, as a woman as part of the Communist Party, you know, as a writer, as this, as that. There's so many more elements to her. I wondered if you could speak on the kind of the way in which I think history is kind of watered down her politics mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah take it away <laughs> so I think it is a really interesting thing to kind of think about the many different ways that we view Claudia Jones and there's kind of I like to think of it as like a prism like there's various different sides to it but they should all come out together into one stream uh, and that is kind of what I was trying to I guess capture at the beginning of that articles to kind of point out the fact that we we seem to only view her in segments. So for us in Britain, we view her as obviously um, involved with Carnival, with the West Indian Gazette. Um, And then in the US, they have a very different view of her, where they are talking about her involvement with the Communist Party and her work as a theoretician in the Communist Party and and the writing that she did there. Um, So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm particularly interested in trying to take it all um, as one. 
And there's other historians as well who are doing really great work in looking at um, her impact in China or the, her travels to China. I think that was the, the main thing that I wanted to get from the article was to point out, A, how she is sort of more than just one thing. She's more than just the Claudia Jones that was in Britain, the Claudia Jones that was in the US, um, and the Claudia Jones who traveled everywhere. These were all the same person. Yeah. Um, and the impact as well that she had was not just on Britain um, and not just on America. It was, you know, with all of the people who, who circulated and traveled globally in that sort of uh, the decade between 1950s and 1960s in particular, um, I ended my article with a photo of Malcolm X, who holds a copy of the West Indian Gazette, because he was supposed to meet with her. And I think that is a real moment in history. Where it's like, well, what if it had just been different? Like, how would this have ended if she had not passed away and she had actually met him? Like, how would that have changed who he was? How would that have changed? Like, what would she have done in the years afterwards? Yeah. Um, so it's one of those big what ifs that I really I love to sort of mull over and think about, because I think when you consider that kind of titan of civil rights history Malcolm X um, being connected to Claudia Jones you really can sort of broaden the perspective of who had helped kind of influence even him yeah. to the point that he had gotten to and what he might have thought um, and might have done had he met her oh could you imagine <laughs> I, I can't sad, yeah. <laughs> yeah no exactly because yeah. oh yeah the timing of it all mm-hmm. yeah and had she maybe been in the US still or mm-hmm. oh you know, I, I didn't know. Wow, I didn't. I've never <laughs> let my brain wander to that place. Yeah. But now you now you say it, and oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think an interesting point about Claudia Jones, and I'm asking this purely because I just want to know. Um, I don't know how interesting that might be for everybody else, but um, she's a member of the Communist Party in the US, and obviously quite high up, and you know that is all a thing. Um, but then when she comes to Britain she's not really welcomed into the like communist party of great britain um is why is that essentially so i think there's a few different strands as to how that has been explained um so one strand is that they think or people think that when claudia came to britain um it would have been unreasonable to have given her like such a high up position straight away in the british communist party okay um Mainly because it's, you know, a different kettle of fish. I don't think they had reckoned as much with the question of race in Britain at that point. Or they hadn't quite made the strides that the American Communist Party had made. Um, Just as an example, I mean, they'd been talking about black belt theory and the idea of black self-determination since the 1920s. Um, So Claudia Jones had been part of the Communist Party from like the 1930s onwards. When she came to Britain, that was a good 20 years afterwards. So she had kind of cut her teeth with the... I guess, the the extremes of African-American experience and and American racism. Um, So Britain was a completely different kettle of fish, I think. Um, And so for her to have immediately joined the Communist Party and been given, you know, um, secretary of the entire party, I think would have been um, a difficult transition for everyone. So that is one strand. Um, I think the other one is that she obviously had a lot of organizing experience and had a lot of opinions, a lot of things that she wrote about. Um, and I think, again, it kind of comes back to that, that difficulty with, well, how, do we, how would we deal with this? How do we bring her in? How do, how do we make her comfortable and also make ourselves comfortable with this sort of um, new perspective at the party? So I think that's also a difficulty um, that the CPGB, uh, the Communist Party of Great Britain, would have faced. Um, and then finally, I think for Claudia Jones, she personally, I think she'd been through so much at that point as well. 
one of the first things um, that she apparently said when she got off the train uh, at Victoria, when she got to Britain, was, I'm ready to work. So she really came here with a spirit of, you know, getting involved immediately in activism here. Um, and I think, sort of for, for better or worse, um, she had her own path to tread. I think if she had joined the Communist Party of Great Britain and been really high up, I think she actually would have been limited. Um, I think the way that she created community and the way that she created her own organizations um, and worked with women like Amy Ashwood Garvey, who wasn't in the Communist Party, for example, uh, I think it gave her a lot more freedom to kind of do the things that she needed or felt she wanted to do. Uh, and I think we're lucky for that because um, I don't think everything has to go by the book. I don't think that she had to join whatever organization or, you know, officially be part of XYZ to do the work that she did. And I'm glad that she she forged her own way with that yeah most definitely that makes complete sense um as you said I think the work that she did do um and all that she achieved in Mm -hmm. in a place that really wasn't necessarily her home I mean it became her home Mm -hmm. but she didn't really have an experience of Britain to then come here you know move here like work here live here set up the West Mm -hmm. Indian Gazette and everything else that she did um it was really nothing short of phenomenal um Mm -hmm. I think Claudia Jones really is one of those um women that you just kind of think wow like how and how because one day of research and I'm ready for like a 12-hour sleep but yeah yeah I mean she was she was tireless and unfortunately I think that kind of led to her her early death yeah Um, I think it's it's kind of a lesson um to sort of take care of yourself and whilst there are these battles and these these things that we have to fight for you also have to look after yourself definitely yeah of course it's interesting as well how then in that time she kind of moves with other other women, um, other black women. You mentioned um, Amy Ashwood Garvey as well. Um, I did wonder, and maybe I should have asked you this at the start, but I wonder how it's something, you know, your research covers black radical women, radical black women, radicalism. How do you define that? Um, or how how do people define that, you know, other scholars or what is your definition that you kind yeah. of carry Uh, when you're thinking about these women or that time period? Mm -hmm. So I think that the term radical, I kind of, I tend to agree with people like Carol Boyce Davis, who's written sort of two books on Claudia Jones and talks about Claudia Jones um, often. And I kind of see her as the scholar of Claudia Jones, um, just as an aside. But she um, sort of defines radicalism as sort of continuing the black radical tradition, um, to kind of reimagining what society can be and not just reforming, like to completely reimagine and think of new ways um, to create a more fair, um, equal and sort of human humanistic world. Um, and then also to sort of look at internationalism rather than insular politics to, to not um, kind of shut ourselves off from, from the world. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, that I came across a while back was an article from Islanda Robson, or part of a, a book actually from Islanda Robson, um, where she, I don't think I can quote it directly right now, but she talked about meeting a, a European when she went to Africa, um, uh, specifically a colonialist is what she called him. Um, and she sort of um, tells him off because he he says, oh, your son, he's so smart. It's a, it's a pity that he's black. Mm. And she she says, it's so out of pocket. It comes out of nowhere. Exactly, exactly. But she is so incensed, and she writes this really, really, um, I think this really powerful response to it, because her response is not that, wow, that's just super racist. I can't believe you said that. She's kind of like, I see 
I, I, I can see right through you. I see the problem here. Mm. Like you, you have shut yourself off from the rest of the world because you're so convinced that whiteness is superior um, and that the society is superior. And all you've done is kind of make a small box for yourself that you yeah. live in. Um, so I think in terms of radicalism and that generation of radical women, they're always looking outwards and they're trying to yeah. expand and trying to sort of include the rest of the world um, in the fight for a fairer, more equal, um, less racist society. So I think when I think of radicalism, it's obviously like leftist radicalism that I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, so it just includes all these sort of these ideas that make not only the conditions of black women less exploitative, but also... Um, I, oh, I can't remember what the phrases that Carl Boyce Davies used, but she said <laughs> something like, "When when black women move, the rest of the world moves." Yeah. So when when things get better for black women, things get better for everyone because yeah. you know, just by definition, but everything yeah, everything gets better. Um, so I, that's that's what I think of when I think of the sort of when I say black radical women, it is women who want these things for society and want these improvements yeah. um, that are that take much bigger leaps forward than than sort of reformist. You know, we'll just change a line of the legislation and then things will be fine for ten years. Mm. It's like no, let's break all of this down yeah. and start again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that and that is, I think, the attitude of a lot of radical black women um, mm-hmm. over the ages of over the last well, however many decades. It is the attitude of we need to burn this down yeah. and then build it back up um, to be equitable um, for all. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting. Uh, yeah. Wow. I'm learning a lot today. I mean, I'm enjoying <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Um, I wondered just because um, you, you think about, you know, a lot of women and you've mentioned uh, quite a few of them for us today. Um, are there any more? that you have in mind that you want to tell us about just because I'm kind of now getting quite interested in all these people that I'm going to go research after this is finished (laughs) um so I can tell you I mean there are lots of women in my study another one who is really central though is Louise Thompson Patterson yeah and in Britain I don't think we really know much about her um she does sort of most of her activism in the U.S. Um, but she is someone who really sort of, so my project looks from 1930 to the 1970s and she is just like, a, a, you could draw a straight line through all of the things that she's involved in from 1930 yeah. to 1970. Um, and she's a really phenomenal activist. She brings together lots of women, uh, for example, in the 1950s when a lot of um, black left radicals, uh, usually the men, um, are being arrested and accused of being communists and having to sort of go along to trials where they have to you know, answer to senators and various other government officials to say that I'm not a communist. So Louise Thompson Patterson forms this organization of women um, that includes women like Claudia Jones, who, well, she's there from afar because she's on house arrest at the time, but she says, you know, I support you. Um, I wish I could be there. Um, And all of these women get together um, in 1951 and they decide that they're going to convene in Washington, D.C., um, and they go and they sort of speak out against the repression of the men in their lives, like various husbands or people that they were close with. Um, and it's this moment that is just really inspiring because it's women who sort of put themselves on the line. And they had been activists for a long time. But obviously, one of the things I'm trying to unpick in my project is the gendered aspect. So the way that a lot of the men get swept up and arrested and sent to prison. Um, Claudia Jones is the only woman from that black left radical network of women that is arrested and imprisoned and exiled eventually. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in how some of these women, you know, didn't have that kind of fate. But one of the things that's often argued is that Claudia Jones was, um, you know, she was an immigrant 
And she also was arrested because she gave a speech on International Women's Day, which was specifically about uplifting women. So there's there's lots of aspects of gender and obviously the migrant experience that are tied up with Claudia Jones's experience. Um, and I really recommend people like Carol Boyce Davies to read more about that. Um, but yeah, so anyway, Louise Thompson-Patterson is someone <laughs> that is really, really interested. Um, she also is part of Angela Davis's defense committee in the oh, 1970s. Wow. So she's this woman who at multiple points really kind of assembles all of these people, um, black left activists, into sort of defending various people at various times in the 20th century. Um, and I think she's kind of, um, she deserves a lot more credit and a lot more praise, I think, than, than we're sort of aware of right now. Absolutely. Well, again, another woman that I wasn't <laughs> aware of. So it's it's so interesting that you think you know, when it comes to history anyway, you think you know something about a time period. Like if you said to me, oh, do you know anything about like radical black movements in America? I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know a few yeah. people, but you, we know nothing. <laughs> we literally know nothing. Um, there's just so much to learn. And it's like you don't even know what you don't know yeah. to even I find. Mean- even to bring it back to History Matters and yeah. the Young Historians Project, there is, it, it is such a process right now, uh, at least in the last, you know, uh, almost decade that these organisations have existed. It is so unbelievable how much we don't know. And yeah. we're still unpicking and learning new things every time we, you know, push out a journal or every time we start a new project. Yeah. Um, and it's still, you know, these things are not widely known. These things are, are sort of being pieced together by us bit by bit. Um, so again, it kind of it shows how important these initiatives are um, and, and the ways that we could, I guess, everyone, listeners, we could always be doing more. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that was a beautiful segue, Tion. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can come back again, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because when it comes to the History Matters Journal, you know, it is a free and accessible, it's like the most accessible mm-hmm. thing you can possibly read if you want something to read about um, Black British history. You know, it's literally available by pdf download online you can read it from a phone from a tablet from a computer whatever um so i believe the last publication came out quite recently autumn 2022 yeah fantastic um so there is that available obviously you can go back and read other editions the great thing about history is it's never out of date because it's Mm -hmm. literally always in the past so you can go back and read those i think the first one came out um in autumn 2020 um and since then there have been several um so Tian um as a kind of member of the editorial team how is it that people listening today that might be thinking I've got some historical research I've done I would like to share this in this journal and you know with I think thinking about what you said about having read um publications and journals from the past when you write for these journals that are eventually going to become part of history you also are putting whilst you're talking about an historical event or person you're putting yourself um into history in ways by you know marking down yourself as a person that's doing that work at that time so it's a very good and important thing to do I will say um how can people contribute uh, Tion if they wanted to so there are a number of ways we have um sort of various social media we have twitter and we have instagram so you can send a message um that way and just sort of say you're interested um the main way I think is to send an email Uh, I believe the email is histmatters at gmail.com. And I think just to sort of give some context as well. So 
the journal is, um, I guess, technically an academic pursuit, but we accept submissions from literally anyone, as long as it's about Black British history. You can submit a piece of archival material. You can submit, you know, a short article. Um, you could submit a review of a book on Black British history that you may have read. Um, so there are lots of ways to get involved, and we cater to all kinds of age groups as well. If you're a school-aged person, or if you're someone who's at university, or if you're retired, you can also submit to the History Matters Journal. Um, the main thing is that, as well as being available, um, this is a kind of democratized platform where people can talk about all aspects of Black British history. Um, and obviously that lends itself well to people with all different kinds of experiences as well. So there's no... There's no strict kind of section of society that you have to have come from um, to submit to us. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and if you missed that, um, it's history matters underscore journal on Instagram um, and matters history on um, Twitter. Um, that is the kind of history matters collective. And then journal underscore matters is the Twitter for um, the journal. If you want more information, they also have a website um, which you can look at. All of this information will be in the show notes for this episode. Um, if you do want to know more, um, just let us know. Um, we can point you in the right direction um, for this uh, remarkable publication. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we wrap up this episode, and I thank you so much, Tion, uh, for being um, a part of it. Um, do you have any final words that you wanted to share about your work um, or anything that you're up to at the moment? I know you have um, a like a pamphlet that came out um, oh. with your master's research about um, abolishing all prisons, examining the roots, mm-hmm. um, which you can purchase. Uh, that will also be linked uh, in the show notes for this episode uh, if you wanted to. Um, you know, Tian's work, obviously, at the moment is what she's spoken about today is, is focused on the article she had written for the History Matters Journal and for her PhD but with most people that do PhDs and any kind of research, there's a whole load of research I've done before that to get to this point. So you can engage with that as well. My, my Twitter account is probably where you can see the most about things that I research. I often share like little excerpts from archives. It's or a very good Twitter. I, or <laughs> books that, I, that I'm currently reading. So if you're interested in anything that we've discussed, you'll probably see uh, something there. And your Twitter is uh, at Tion Paris. Yes. Double yes. N, Tion, double R for Paris. Yep. fantastic um so thank you so much Tian um for coming here today uh recording this episode and sharing so much of your work um it really is remarkable the work you're doing and I I can't wait to read uh what you have to say kind of as you go through the PhD and and the final kind of work uh when that all kind of gets wrapped up and and is all done um but thank you so much for being here today Thank you so much for having me. And I got to say, I'm a fan of your podcast, The History Hotline, anyway. um, As as I said already, Black British history um, was not something that I knew a lot about until I found your podcast. Oh, thank Um, you. And also got involved in these various other things. So um, two thumbs up from me. Everyone go listen to other episodes. um, Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here, honestly. Um, Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. um, And thank you, everyone, for listening to the episode. Bye. Bye. The History Hotline, a direct line to a better understanding of Black British history. The History Hotline is edited and hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook and research is done by Zakia Riaz. To continue to support this podcast, please follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter. This podcast is available on all good podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.